Can I run a case by you two that just came in? I've got this 80-year-old woman with a history of hypertension on an ACE and an aspirin who had a sudden onset of dense right hemiplegia and facial droop that started four hours ago. Her pressure is 190 over 100, a bit over the lysis cutoff, right? Anyways, her husband has asked me about lysis. It'll take at least an hour to get her to the stroke center, and by the time they image her, she'll probably be outside the window for systemic lysis anyhow. And her pressure would have to be lowered before they do that anyways. Should I transfer her? Should I scan and lyse her here? Yeah, that's a tough one, man. I'd probably just protect my behind and send her. You really have nothing to lose. No way. I'm with Jerry Hoffman on this one. Lysis for stroke is a hoax, especially when you're nearing the long end of the time window. Defensive medicine is for wimps. It's all about shared decision-making. Have a conversation with a husband. As far as I'm concerned, it's a toss-up between a small increase in her chance of death against a possible functional benefit if she doesn't die. So, it's a personal choice. Hmm. Decisions, decisions. I'm Anton Hellman. And I'm Teresa Chan. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And I'm Rory Spiegel. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. Now, you might be thinking, why are we embarking on this topic of lytics for stroke? Hasn't it all been covered before? Yeah, well, Anton, I guess a few months ago, I was on shift dealing with a similar case to the one discussed at the top of the podcast when I stumbled upon changes in the package insert of TPA for CVA. And quite frankly, I was shocked. All the strict previous contraindications to lytics for stroke have vanished based on, as far as I can tell, no real data. And maybe I'm just a bit sensitive now in the current post-truth reality, but with the disappearance of Smart EM and the semi-retirement of Dr. Jerome Hoffman, who spent a career discussing the flaws in the literature supporting the use of thrombolytics for CVA, there are fewer and fewer people championing the evidence behind thrombolytics in CVA. And what I fear is the true data and the controversies surrounding it is being intentionally and unintentionally forgotten. So when I suggested this to you guys a few months back and we all got excited and jumped on this topic, what I thought we could talk about, and from my perspective, what this podcast is, is two goals. The first is do what we do on Journal Jam Podcast, which we take a deep dive into the literature on this specific topic. But the second, and probably more important for this topic in particular, is that this podcast will serve as a reference for those who wish to learn about the controversies surrounding stroke care. Yeah, everybody knows there's a controversy here, and we all hear a lot of different opinions, but unless you're familiar with the literature, unless you've heard a little bit about the papers, you can't make up your own mind. And that's why I think it's really important to at least go through these papers one time, have heard about them. Yeah, totally. Now, let, let's talk a bit about the background of lytics in general. We need to start with lytics for STEMI. You know, I remember about 15 years ago, I was thrombolizing lots of patients with STEMI in the ED, and I was actually feeling pretty good about it because I knew the evidence for it was actually great. And I suppose the neurologists at the time were thinking, if it works for STEMI, why shouldn't lytics work for stroke as well? So yeah, there were a bunch of really big trials in, in MI. We had ISIS-2, GISI-2, GUSO-2. The meta-analysis would include over 70,000 patients, which you compare to the only 10,000 or so we're going to talk about today, and they were consistent. In these studies, thrombolytics for STEMI provided a small but important benefit in mortality. They were all consistent. 
Yeah, well, Justin, you keep on talking about thrombolytics, but what you mean is TPA, right? I mean, no one really uses streptokinase anymore. Yeah, that's that's a great question, Anton. And you know, this is where things get really interesting because most of the data comparing these two drugs in MI found no difference in patient important outcomes. Um, and when you start diving back, it gets really fun. In 1985, the New England Journal of Medicine published discussing TIMI-1, that's right, the first TIMI trial, um, that compared the efficacy of TPA to streptokinase in patients presenting with myocardial infarctions. And in this report, they basically described the results of 290 patients randomized to receive either TPA or streptokinase. And the trial was stopped early because patients in the TPA group did remarkably better. Right. So I guess you mean TPA is better. Well, no. What the authors meant by better was that at 90 minutes, 60% of the patients in the TPA group had reperfusion compared to only 35 in the streptokinase group. And this, of course, is not a clinical outcome. And in fact, the patients did the same from a clinical perspective. Now, they were supposed to do a second part to this trial in which patients were enrolled and the study was powered to examine clinically important endpoints like mortality. So where is part two? Yeah, where is part two? So it was never actually done. And there was this quote, this amazing quote that was like released from the internal communications of the makers of TPA. And it read like this, we do not know how another trial would turn out. And if we don't come out ahead, we would have a terrible self-inflicted wound. Another study may be good for America, but it would not be a good thing for us. And since then, there have been a number of large RCTs with tens and thousands of patients showing no difference between the two drugs. But what this quote really illustrates, and I think what is important for this topic, which we're going to discuss today, is these studies aren't dealing with science. They're dealing with money. Yeah, this has been a, a big problem in the literature and medicine in general is whether there's conflicts of interest. They're sometimes not so explicitly stated. Now, I want to talk a little bit about, about the scales used in these, in these trials, because this is another problem besides the money that came out of these trials. So before we dive into the dozen or so IV lytics trials and all the endovascular lytic ones, we need to take a few minutes to understand the most common stroke scale that these trials refer to. And although there were many different scales, really the one that we need to know about is the modified Rankin scale. So Roy, can you just tell us a little bit about the modified Rankin scale and how it worked? Right. So as you said, there's a number of scales. And I think once we start diving into this literature, you'll see the early trials use multiple different scales to measure function. But over time, it seems the MRS has kind of won out. And all these scales, including the modified Rankin score, is essentially a way to try to measure function at 90 days or whenever they measure it. And there are essentially seven categories, zero being independent and six being dead. Everything in between is incrementally higher degree of functional dependence. So I think the key distinctions in these studies are between scores of one, two, or three. So let's just focus on those for a second. A score of one is no significant disability and able to carry out all usual activities despite these symptoms. A score of two is a slight disability and able to look after one's own affairs without assistance, but unable to carry out all previous activities. And a score of three, termed moderate disability, requires some help, but able to walk unassisted. And although these categories seem distinct, a closer look will tell you that they're pretty subjective. 
And the categories don't just look subjective, they've, they've been studied. And even in the hands of trained stroke neurologists, there's a huge amount of disagreement when you're trying to determine what category to assign any given patient to. If a kappa value means anything to you, there's a study by Quinn in 2009 where they found that the overall kappa was 0.46. All you really need to know is that means it's very poor. So the bottom line to keep in mind as we're trying to understand these studies is that what category a patient goes into, a one, a two, a three, might have some subjectivity to it. The scores become even more unreliable when we're trying to differentiate between intermediate scores, like a two from a three, which is actually one of the very cutoffs we use to demonstrate efficacy. Yeah, I mean, this stuff on the modified Rankin scale is super important. You know, there was a Cochrane review of all the Ivy Lytic trials that suggested a 6% reduction in disability, which sounds pretty good. But this was based on them saying that a modified Rankin scale of 0 or 1 is favorable and 2 or greater is unfavorable with lytics, which is kind of arbitrary in terms of the cutoff. So 17 patients were treated with lytics to avoid one from having so-called unfavorable outcome. And if the scoring is subjective, I see that as a pretty major problem. And by the way, the same Cochrane review also found the exact same number when it came to harm. A total of 6% were harmed. So that's 1 in 17 died or had a head bleed. So again, the modified Rankin scale is really quite subjective. And based on this Cochrane review, it's really not that convincing when you just have a one-point difference. And you hit on an important point there, Anton, is that we often use cutoffs. And so we're talking about a favorable cutoff. But when you use just zero or one as favorable, what you end up doing is grouping people with an MRS of two, which is just slight disability, into the same category as people with a six, the people who are dead. So it becomes really tricky in, in trying to figure out how to dichotomize these, these numbers and, and really understand them in the end. And the other thing about understanding the modified Rankin scale is this thing called the ordinal analysis. Uh, Now, this is complicated stuff, but my understanding based on a talk that Joel Yaffe gave at U of T EM's Whistler conference was that a lot of neuro studies use this composite endpoint of death and or the modified Rankin score as their primary outcome measure using an ordinal analysis, which seems a bit more like data fudging to me. Now, this stuff is way over my head. Justin, can you explain what this ordinal analysis is and how it relates to interpreting stroke outcomes? Because I understand that most of these studies actually used ordinal analysis. Yeah, so honestly, I'm not even nerdy enough to understand the math behind this. And I don't think anybody... Oh, yeah, you are. I don't think anybody really needs to know it, though. The basic idea is that there are st- these are statistical techniques in order to assess an ordered set of numbers. So you have to remember, these aren't real numbers on a scale that we're dealing with. This is a, a set of numbers. You either get a one or a two or a three or a four. And it's just a statistical technique to, to deal with that set of ordinal numbers. And there would be two big reasons that we might want to use these. The first, and probably the big reason that they're using them, is that they increase your statistical power. So that you need fewer people in the trial to get a positive result. The second reason you might want to use one of these is that they let us look at some results that a dichotomous outcome would miss, like I was talking about before. When you look at a dichotomous outcome, we, we cut at a number like two, and we make that as a sort of artificial cutoff. But you could have somebody improve from a two to a zero, and you would miss that in our classic dichotomous outcomes. But that would be seen in an ordinal analysis. So that might sound like it's a pretty good idea, but there's a couple uh, problems. First, 
the big one for me is the numbers that they spit out are a lot harder to understand. You can't just calculate a number needed to treat. It's harder to compare harms and benefits. It's harder to talk to our patients. And probably more importantly for the stroke literature, ordinal analyses assume the reliability of the scale that's being used. But unfortunately, we've already said the modified ranking scale is just not that reliable. And we'll probably talk about that more as we go through. But when two neurologists assess the same patient, their MRS assessment might vary wildly. So that's going to make your ordinal analysis far less reliable. So now that we have a pretty good idea of what the issues are around the modified Rankin scale and the ordinal analysis used in many of these studies, I think we're finally ready to actually take our deep dive into, into the IV lysis RCT data. Now, it's important to note that these trials are really quite heterogeneous or heterogeneous, depending on how I like to say it. You know, they have different study designs. They have different settings, different population characteristics. So it's really difficult to pool the results all together, like in a Cochrane review, for example. So that means so that means we need to go through each study one by one to get a deeper understanding of the literature overall. So here we go. We're ready for the deep dive. Justin, why don't you start it off? And so the first major RCT that was published was the MAST Italy trial, which not surprisingly took place in Italy. And it's a randomized multicenter trial that enrolled 622 patients who presented within six hours of symptom onset. Uh, the treatment they were using was streptokinase, 1.5 million units, and it was an open label trial. So the comparison group just got no treatment rather than placebo. And the primary outcome they were looking at was death and disability. So they were looking at the upper end of the modified Rankin scale, three to six at six months. And the results, the trial was stopped early because of harm. So they were actually supposed to enroll 1,500 patients, but they stopped after 622. And there was no difference in death or disability at six months. It was 63 versus 65%, but mortality was increased. It was 36% with streptokinase and only 24% with tr no treatment. There was also an increase in early mortality, which was the main reason that they stopped the trial. Now, there's probably a few things that we should note about the trial. First, they did have to screen 14,000 patients to find the 622 that were eligible. And this is a pretty common theme through all these papers. It's a select group of patients who get enrolled even just for TPA. And this is probably why we're seeing so many efforts now to ignore some of the exclusion criteria and treat more people. And the other thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about this trial is that this was, again, an open label trial, which normally would bias in favor of the treatment group, but again, stopped early for harm. Okay, so to sum up MAST-1, it used streptokinase in enrolled patients up to six hours after symptom onset, and it was stopped early for harm. Uh, Rory, what came after MAST trial? So the next was ECAS-1, and I'm sure our listeners have probably heard of ECAS-3, but soon they'll see there was an ECAS-1 and an ECAS-2. And this one was also published in 1995, and this was in JAMA. And this too was a randomized multicenter, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial, only this time it was TPA. And they included 620 patients with moderate to severe strokes with no early changes on CT within six hours of symptom onset. And they compared TPA in a slightly larger dose than what we're used to at 1.1 milligram per kilogram to placebo. 
And they had two primary outcomes, which isn't ideal, but they were both functional outcome scores designed to look at neurological function at 90 days. And the results were no difference. There was no improvement in the Barthel index or the modified Rankin scale at 90 days. Mortality was higher in the TPA group, 17.9% versus 12.7%. But this wasn't quite statistically significant with a p-value of 0.08. And there was a pretty high amount of protocol violations at 17.4%. However, there's no reason to think why these same protocol violations wouldn't occur in the real world. And we all know from a methodological standpoint, the intention to treat analysis is far more appropriate. All right, so so far we've got one trial that was stopped early because of harm and another trial that showed no difference, the, the ECAS trial, you know, even though they were done around the same time, again, it just amazes me that, you know, now that we have two trials that didn't show any benefit, but they still continue to study this. Justin, what's next? The, the NINS trial. This is a big one, right? Yeah. So now we get to the infamous NINS trial, but actually it's the NINS part one which it seems like nobody's ever heard about. It's a little bit of a strange study because even though it was a completely separate trial, it was published in the same manuscript as NINS Part 2, which we're going to get back to in a second. Now, in a lot of ways, the two trials, NINS 1 and NINS 2, are are very similar. They both are randomized, double-blind trials comparing TPA, as we know it, 0.9 milligrams per kilogram to placebo in patients who presented within three hours of symptom onset. Now, we should note that these aren't all patients who present within three hours, because in this trial, for every patient enrolled in the 90 to 180 minute window, you also had to enroll one in the zero to 90 minute uh, window. But just think about that for a minute. How often do you see an eligible stroke patient who could be treated within 90 minutes? It's really rare. And so this is a very select group of patients skewed towards the very early presenters. Now, Both NINS trials also used the same inclusion and exclusion criteria. The only real difference here, which may be a little bit fishy, is the primary outcome. And NINS 1, which we're talking about right now, looked at the outcomes at 24 hours. And once again, they, they break the rules a little bit by having two primary outcomes. And their outcomes were either a complete resolution of symptoms or an improvement by four points on the NIH stroke scale. And in terms of the results... NINS 1 is a negative trial. There wasn't a difference in their primary outcome at 24 hours. So 47% of people were improved by four or more points on the NIH stroke scale at uh, 24 hours with TPA as compared to 39% with placebo, and that p-value there is 0.2. Now, they did have a secondary outcome here that is what is turned into the primary outcome of NINS 2. So we'll tackle that in a minute, but I will skip ahead for a second because the NINS 2 patients also had their 24-hour outcomes measured. And if you combine NINS 1 and NINS 2, there's still no statistical difference at 24 hours. The absolute numbers are exactly the same as I just mentioned. They're still not statistically significant, although the p-value is now 0.06. You know, Justin, I find it really interesting that they were measuring 24-hour outcomes because I remember when people were thrombolizing when I when I started working about 15 years ago, more than a few times docs would tell me they gave TPA to a stroke patient and it was like a miracle. Like they saw the patient improve right in front of them, like within an hour of administration. 
So how is it possible that they saw these patients improve so quickly when the NINS trial showed zero benefit at 24 hours? It's a fantastic question, Anton. And as definitely by far the most common antidote that I hear about when I'm discussing lytics for strokes. I pushed the drug and they got better instantly. But the data here says that TPA did not affect outcomes at 24 hours. Now, we could dig into that a little bit. It gets close to statistically significant, but there's a bunch of problems with this data that we're going to get into in more depth when we get into NINS2. But let me tell you a different antidote instead. So I saw a patient just the other day who had a dense left-sided hemiplegia. It was just under three hours, so we rushed her up to the CT scanner, and as soon as she was back in the department, I met her in the room so we could discuss TPA, but it was a miracle. Her symptoms were resolving right in front of my eyes, so it would seem to me that not giving TPA saves people. It must have been your healing aura, man. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and th this story right here, people improving without TPA by the numbers actually happens far more often than the people improving with TPA. We just don't talk about it because we don't get to feel like heroes. So my, my answer to your question is, if a doctor sees a patient getting better right in front of their eyes after giving TPA, it's very likely that they just gave this medication to a patient with a TIA or a stroke mimic. And it's funny, these, these absolutely, the best TPA stories, these saves, might actually be the worst TPA stories because you're exposing these patients to all of the risks without the benefits. Okay, so that was NINS1, the all-but-forgotten trial, which showed that TPA given in under three hours had no benefit. Next is NINS2, which is the well-known NINS trial. This trial has been kind of shredded apart a million times in journal clubs everywhere. What are the most important aspects of the NINS trial that, that we need to know about? Right, so this is NINS2. This is the, the trial that ends all trials. And like Justin said, the methods are identical to part one and the outcome is what's different. And, and actually when they were going through NINS1, they saw that they weren't going to come up with a statistically significant um, outcome. So they kind of data dredge found outcome that actually was showing a benefit and then redid a second trial to try to confirm that outcome. Um, so instead of looking at 24 hour outcomes, we looked at three month or 90 day outcomes. And now, uh, as opposed to ECAS, where we had two primary outcomes, we have four primary outcomes. Yes, four different functional scales. And part two included 333 patients, and there was a huge amount of exclusion criteria. And we don't have to go through all of them. But the thing to know here is, these are the contraindications that used to be found in the package insert that started this whole conversation. And the people that advocate for TPA and stroke, one of the big arguments why NINS was positive and so many of the other trials was negative were these exclusion criteria that selected the right group of patients. So in NINS, this was the first positive trial that we've had so far, right? Three negative trials and NINS 2 is our first positive one. And the efficacy size depends on which primary outcome you choose. Most people talk about the modified Rankin scale uh, and the percentage of patients who ended up with a score of zero or one. And there was an absolute benefit of about 13% in this group. The TPA group had 39 patients with a score of zero or one, and the placebo group had 26%. And the other outcomes were pretty similar of just slightly less benefit with 11 or 12%. <laughs> 
to note here, there's no difference in mortality. So even the most positive trial we have on thrombolytics in CVA, there was no mortality benefit, which is contrary to the MI data, which consistently showed a mortality benefit in almost every trial they looked at it. Justin had alluded before to the possible badness of, of lytics in stroke, and we haven't really talked about it in the papers yet. What about ICH? Like, what, what were the numbers like for that? Yeah, so, I mean, we'll see this consistently across every trial, and, you know, it may, we may have been amiss not to mention it yet. Uh, but in the NINS trial, they showed an increase in intracranial hemorrhage from 1% to 7%. Um, and we'll see this 7% or 6% absolute increase consistently across every single randomized control trial that was done. So there we have it, right? The, the data that changed the world. But because it's so important, I think we really need to take a little more time to talk about this paper, hey? So one of the big differences here is that all the early trials were looking for improvement or how much patients changed on a stroke scale. The outcome here is different. The NINS authors were looking for the percentage of patients who had an excellent outcome. But the problem there is that whether or not you have an excellent outcome has a lot to do with how bad a stroke you had in the first place. And this is one of the major downfalls of the NINS data. It assumes that the randomization process worked and that the variation in severity of strokes were equally distributed between the two groups, which of course in a 300 patient study isn't always the case. And there has been some data published since this original manuscript that demonstrates that actually the placebo group seemed to have more severe strokes, which in and of itself, could explain why more of them were doing worse at the end of the trial. Hmm. There's more to say about NINS for sure. NINS was the first positive trial, but my, my question is, why was MAST-1, ECAS-1, and NINS all negative trials, but the NINS-2 was a, was a positive one? I mean, you alluded to this a bit, but l- let's let's dig into that a bit deeper. Right. So the proponents of the thrombolytics or TPA will say NINS2 was positive because we used the right agent. MAST-I was negative because it used streptokinase, and streptokinase is far worse than TPA, despite all the evidence basically showing that they're equivalent. The proponents will go on to say that NINS2 was positive because it used the right time window. ECAS and MAST-I used a six-hour time window, while NINS2 used a three-hour window. And They'll say that NINS2 was positive because they used they enrolled the right patients. Uh, they used a very strict protocol and only enrolled very specific patients compared to MASTI or ECAST. And this very well might be true. This might be the reasons that NINS2 was positive where our first three trials were negative. But there's another reason that's equally likely that this might be true, and that's just random chance of sampling error. Like Justin said, a sicker group of patients got randomly enrolled into the placebo group, and hence the results showed that TPA was better. And really, the only way to differentiate these two reasons why NINS2 was positive and the rest of the trial was negative is to repeat the study to validate these findings. All right, but you know, Rory, it seems to me that the obvious next step for the researchers here after NINS2 would be a NINS3, which would clarify things because the NINS2 trial wasn't even that big of a study and it had all these sort of problems. So what about NINS3, Justin? Yeah, so there's been a number of studies published since NINS2, and I think this data says it's valuable. We're going to go through it. But obviously, seeing as we're still having this debate, 
there hasn't been a perfect replication of NINs to settle this issue. So the, the next big trial that got published was the MAST Europe trial. Uh, and this is a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. They were using streptokinase again, that's 1.5 million units, and they were giving it to patients with moderate to severe strokes only in the territory of the middle cerebral artery, and you had to present within six hours again. And the primary outcome, again, was looking at death or disability using a modified ranking score greater than or equal to three at six months. And the results of this trial stopped early because of increased mortality. They had planned to enroll 600 patients in total, but they stopped after 310. They didn't see a difference in the primary outcome, that modified ranking score three to six. It occurred in about 80% of patients in both groups. There was a significant increase in mortality at 10 days. It was 34% with treatment and only 18% with placebo. But that wasn't statistically significant anymore by six months. Although I'll note, there's still a 9% absolute increase in mortality at the end of the streptokinase trial. And again, we can say this over and over again for every trial, but there was, a, again, a very large increase in intracerebral bleeding in this trial. It was 21% with treatment as compared to only 3% with placebo. So there we have it. The first studies published since NINs resoundingly negative. And of course, it wasn't really a replication of NINs too. Maybe streptokinase is not good. Although we should mention in MI, it was equally good. And the Cochrane review of thrombolytics and stroke showed that there was no difference between thrombolytic agents. And, you know, no one has ever studied streptokinase versus TPA in stroke. But maybe the reason that this trial was negative, whereas NINS2 was positive, was again because streptokinase was used. And the other argument here is the time frame was wrong. Six hours is too long. But they obviously didn't think of that before the study started. They included patients out to six hours. And this is a little unfair to paint a new target just around the results that you like. Rory, what's up next? So next up, we have the ASK trial. And this was a, this was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that included 340 adult patients within four hours of symptom onset. So this trial is within the modern treatment window. They compared 115 million units of streptokinase, which always seems... 1.5. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Either way, it seems like... 150 <laughs> million units. No wonder Their those brains exploded later. and they, they bled out of every pore. <laughs> <laughs> they compared 1.5 million units of streptokinase, which always seems quite dramatic to me, and they compared it to placebo. So unfortunately, we don't get our perfect replication of NINs because, again, these authors use streptokinase, although still we don't have a real compelling reason to think one agent could be better than the other. And the results? Yet another trial stopped early because of increased mortality. The authors had originally planned to include 600 patients, but stopped after 340. The mortality rate was almost doubled in the streptokinase arm. There was no difference in the primary outcome, death, or disability using the Barthel index of less than 60 at three months. All right, so next up in our list is ECAS-2. And again, this is a multi-center, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. It's a TPA trial. But unlike ECAS-1, they now use the normal dose of TPA, the 0.9 milligrams per kilogram. To get into this trial, you had to have a moderate to severe hemispheric stroke within six hours of symptom onset. Now, this trial was started after NINS, so it really is 
a sort of replication study, and they did include a planned subgroup to look at the zero to three hour patients. They also used one of the primary outcomes from NINS, a modified Rankin scale of zero to one, and they even limited themselves to one primary outcome. Impressive. And the results? No difference. 40% of the patients had a favorable outcome with TPA as compared to 37% with placebo. There was no change in mortality. And of course, there was the increase in major intracerebral hemorrhage, 12% versus 3%. So maybe we have a NINS replication study and it was negative. But of course, the argument is that the time frame is wrong. They included patients up to six hours. But remember, they did plan a zero to three hour subgroup. And the results? No difference. There was no benefit in the primary outcome. It was 34% with TPA and 29% with placebo, and that p-value made it to 0.28. In fact, in the zero to three hour group, mortality was higher in the patients treated with TPA, 14 versus 8%. So we have a replication set of TPA within three hours that wasn't just neutral, but actually showed increased mortality. You know, Justin, this ECAS 2 strikes me as the study that kind of should have ended IV lysis for stroke, you know, back in 1998. It's really curious to me that it didn't. The next study was in 99 out of JAMA. That was the Atlantis B study, right? So, Rory, do you want to tell us a little bit about that one and how they managed to sort of overcome the ECAS 2 study, which, again, to me, seemed like it almost closed the book on lytics for stroke? Yeah, and I I think the reason it didn't is because if you remember, the FDA approved TPA for ischemic stroke in 1996. And so the cat was already out of the bag at that point. And we're going to see, starting at Atlantis B, that that approval starts kind of shifting the literature and how they're actually building and designing trials. Um, So this is Atlantis B, which is funnily enough published before Atlantis A. And this was in JAMA in 1999. Um, It was a multi-center, placebo-controlled, double-blinded trial trial, and they were again comparing TPA to placebo. And the Atlantis study started out as another zero to six hour study. But after 142 patients, there were significant safety concerns and the patients were in that five to six hour window. So they changed the study to a zero to five hour study and restarted it. And that new trial was called Atlantis B, which is the one we're talking about. But it gets even more complicated because, like I said, in 1996, the FDA approved TPA for the use in the under three-hour time window. So, Anton, imagine if you were Genentech or Boringer Ingelheim and now you had FDA approval. What is your motivation to keep studying that three-hour window? Pretty much none. Right. So, again, they, they changed their protocol and only enrolled patients from three to five hours. They were looking for excellent neurological outcome, which they defined as an MRS of zero to one at 90 days. And the results, they stopped this trial early because it was unlikely to prove benefit. There was no difference in their primary outcome, 32% in the placebo group and 34% in the TPA group. And mortality was not statistically different, but was higher in the TPA arm, 11 versus 6.9%. Obviously, this trial is a bit of a mess with the multiple protocol changes. And let's be honest, their justification to stop enrolling patients in the zero to three hour window was mostly financially driven. More concerning was the decision to stop the trial early. They state the trial did not meet any of its pre-specified criteria for stopping. So why did they stop it? 
and it, it's hard to know exactly, but Genentech not only sponsored the trial, but was responsible for all the data management and analysis. So there's a clear conflict of interest here. The one thing I noticed is that the mortality increased with a p-value of 0.09 was very close to being statistically significant. And if you added the remaining 350 patients, it could have reached that point. And I think, as was said in the letter earlier, that might have been a self-inflicted wound to their further use of this product. And the other thing that really bugged me about this trial is they did have patients in the zero to three hour window. So we would have had another replication of NINs, but nowhere in the manuscript do they report the data for those patients. I also feel with this paper that I need to comment on some of the crazy bias discussion that happens in some of these papers. So there's a quote in this paper that says, there was no significant difference in mortality between the groups, although the trend towards improved 90-day mortality seen in the NINS trial was not seen here. Now, just to remind you, the mortality numbers in NINS were 17% with TPA and 21% with placebo, so a 4% difference, and the p-value was 0.3, and they're calling that a trend. But in this trial, the mortality was 11% with TPA and 7% with placebo. So again, a 4% difference, but now the p-value is 0.09. So it's a trend when the mortality goes down in NINs with a higher p-value, but it's <laughs> non-significant in this trial when it goes up with a lower p-value. It's crazy. Your falls like crazy fingers. So we've talked about the Atlantis B trial. Uh, now let's talk about the Atlantis A trial. Yeah, so we get to go backwards. About a year after Atlantis B, we get Atlantis A. Uh, and this is the first 142 patients of the trial when they were still doing that zero to six hour time frame. And we already said they stopped this trial because they noticed harm in the five to six hour group of patients. And they had three different primary outcomes that they were looking at in this part of the trial. And their results, well, there actually was a statistically significant improvement at 24 hours. 21% of the placebo group had an improvement of four points or more on the NH, NIH stroke scale as compared to 40% with TPA. So p-value 0.02. However, by 30 days, the results were the opposite with 75% of the placebo group and only 60% of the TPA group having that improvement of four points or more p-value was 0.05. And the mortality was much higher with TPA, 25% versus 7% statistically significant. So it's interesting because it may provide some contradiction to NINS1, and maybe it validates some of the antidotes that we were talking about earlier. There were people who were seeing early improvement after TPA, but if that's true, those people seeing early improvement is nothing to get excited about because in this trial, those groups did worse in the long run. They had higher mortality, worse outcomes. Okay, so it seems like the data is kind of all over the place till now. We're about halfway through. Let's just keep motoring through, and then hopefully by the end, we can make some good, solid conclusions. People have been trying to sum up this literature and have some good, solid conclusions for years now, and everyone has failed. So I'm not sure we're going to come up with a better answer, but we're going to try. Um, yeah, so the DS2, this was Lancet Neurology 2008, and uh, this, again, was a multi-center placebo-controlled, double-blind, randomized controlled trial. And they included patients with hemispheric ischemic strokes, which they categorized as an NIH stroke scale of 4 to 24. And they actually, on this one, looked for an ischemic penumbra of potentially salvable tissue on CT or MRI. And these patients have to present between three and nine hours after symptom onset. And 
The other interesting thing about this trial is they used a new drug called desmodoplase, which is actually found in the mucus of vampire bats. And theoretically, desmodoplase is better than TPA because it has high fibrin specificity, no activation of beta amyloid, and doesn't cause neurotoxicity. And they compared two different doses, 90 and 125 micrograms per kilogram to placebo. The primary outcome was clinical response at 90 days defined by the composite of improvement of eight or more on an NIH stroke scale or an NIH stroke scale of less than one. And they also looked at a modified Rankin scale of zero to two and a Barthel index of 75 to 100. So like we've been seen before, multiple, multiple primary outcomes. The results no difference in the primary outcome between the three groups at 90 days. Mortality was 6% with placebo, 5% in the 90 microgram per kilogram group, and 21% in the 125 microgram per kilogram group. And so this is a really interesting study because there's a movement here to use imaging to identify a subgroup of stroke patients who may actually benefit from reperfusion. And I think when we start talking about the endovascular therapies a little later, we'll see how potentially important this kind of phenotyping is. But the time interval is what bothers me. They used this three to nine hours. Why didn't they enroll patients in the zero to three hour window? Because again, if you already have FDA approval for the zero to three hour window, why would you go study it again? And this can only potentially limit the number of patients who would receive thrombolytics in that group and in the end hurt big pharma's bottom line. Yeah, I, I found this was really when things started getting interesting when they started looking at the ischemic penumbra because it just made a lot more physiologic sense that if there was no brain tissue to salvage around the stroke, then why even try bothering? Um, so I remember this This was actually a pretty exciting time that I thought, you know, maybe right, now they've actually narrowed it down to the patients that could truly benefit from this stuff. And it's really interesting when you think about it from the perspective that every trial that's ever tried to show benefit using an ischemic penumbra failed until we actually started using endovascular therapy. So all the thrombolytic trials looking at it never found a benefit. So it makes you wonder, is there actually a benefit of thrombolytics? But it leaves a, a big and important point when we compare this literature to the thrombolytics for MI literature, which there is a benefit in the thrombolytics for MI literature, but it's a narrow therapeutic window. There's a 2.5% benefit in terms of mortality, but a 1% bleed rate. Very narrow, but we don't give lytics to all chest pain patients. We don't give lytics to all chest pain patients with a positive troponin, we found a small subgroup of patients, those with ST elevations on their MI, where it actually worked. The big concern is we have no such equivalent in stroke patients. So right now, we're sort of doing the equivalent of giving the lytics to every chest pain patient, which is a bit of a problem. Right, I mean, it's not even every heart attack patient. It's like you said, every chest pain patient, because not everyone who comes in with stroke-like symptoms are actually having a stroke. So if I'm keeping track properly here, after NINs, we've had four trials stopped early because of harm and two negative trials. Not a resounding replication as of yet. But next up is another famous one, the ECAS-3 trial. So Justin, give us the lowdown on that one. 
Yep. So this is another well-designed trial from the outset. It's multi-center, it's placebo-controlled, it's double-blind, and it's randomized. They included 821 adult patients, uh, and they were originally looking at a three to four hour time frame after symptom onset. Although because of some recruitment issues, they changed that to three to four and a half hours partway through the trial. They excluded severe strokes, people with an NIH stroke score of greater than 25. And once again, they were comparing TPA to placebo, and they were looking at the primary outcome of disability at 90 days using that modified ranking score. And we all know this is the second trial with positive results, specifically that primary outcome, the modified ranking scale of zero to one, improved by 7%. It was 52% with TPA and 45% with placebo. Mortality was the same in both groups. However, unlike NINs, this doesn't seem to be a consistent result here. In NINs, we saw all the different outcomes improved at 90 days. Here, there was no statistical difference in the Glasgow outcome score. There was no statistical difference in the Barthel index. And they had this global outcome measure that included everything. And that also wasn't statistically significant, although at least it was close with a p-value of 0.05. Also, if you looked at a different cutoff value on the modified ranking scale, if you used zero to two instead of zero to one, once again, the results weren't statistically significant. So it's a positive trial, but not resoundingly so. And you really want to see consistency in the outcomes of a trial. If only a few are positive, you start to wonder if that represents simple chance or bias in the data. Yeah, that, that's amazing that if they just chose the cutoff on the ranking scale, that's what made the difference between a positive and a negative trial. Again, there's so much subjectivity in the ranking scale to begin with, and then just depending on where you move that cutoff will really influence the outcome of a study. And I haven't even touched on the biggest problem with this trial. Because once again, there's an imbalance between the groups at the start of the trial. Just like in NINs, the placebo group had worse strokes, higher NIH stroke scores when the trial started. And if you have a worse stroke at the beginning, you're going to have worse outcomes at the end, no matter what we do. But we all know what happened after this trial. All of a sudden, it was okay to administer TPA outside of the three-hour window. Now, I'm not sure that that makes a lot of sense. We already had a bunch of negative trials. But we said NINS was special. It was different because of that three-hour window. But if we ignore that three-hour window now, we no longer have a reason to throw out ECAS-1 and 2 and Atlantis and all these other trials. Right. So the yeah. ASK trial was actually the exact same time frame at zero to four hours and was stopped early for harm. And if you want to stick to TPA trials, Atlantis-B was three to five hours with the mean treatment time of less than four and a half hours, and it too was stopped early for harm. So the logic here that we can just look at the two positive trials and ignore everything else just doesn't make any sense. There's obviously a lot of bias when you go into interpreting the data when you look at it that way. So that was the ECAS-3 trial, which I remember being sort of this huge, quote, game changer. I didn't realize that I had so many problems with it until now. Um, next up, Rory, is the IST-3 trial out of The Lancet in 2012. Yeah, so this was a big one, the multi-center, open-label, randomized control trial. And this was the largest thrombolytic in 
stroke trial yet. They included 3,035 adult patients that presented within six hours of symptom onset. And there was some interesting things. Patients were excluded if they had a clear indication for TPA and if there was a clear contraindication. And they were only included in the trial if both the physician and the patient thought that the treatment was promising but not proven, which is a strange and interesting way to enroll someone. And so 53% of these patients were older than 80, which was actually excluded from the remainder of these trials. And again, this compared TPA to placebo. And the primary outcome was a proportion of patients alive and independent at six months. And they used something called the Oxford Handicap Score, which actually is very, very similar to the modified Rankin scale. And Again, this trial was impressively negative. For the primary outcome, an Oxford handicap score of 0 to 2, 35% of the placebo group and 37% of the TPA group were alive and independent at six months. Mortality was unchanged, 27% in each group, and there was an increase in mortality at seven days in the TPA group, 11 versus 7%. And of course, like every other trial we've looked at so far, the rate of intracranial hemorrhage was vastly increased in the TPA group, and the absolute increase was, again, 6%. But, Rory, hold, hold on. Those are clearly negative results, but everywhere I have heard, this trial is positive. I've never heard anything about this trial except for to say that it was a positive trial. What the heck? Right. So, so this, is the, this is where this ordinal analysis that you talked about earlier rears its ugly head. And up until now, every trial we've looked at uses the standard dichotomous outcome to examine functional outcomes. And they either use an MRS scale of zero and one or an MRS scale of zero, one, or two to be included as a positive outcome. And the argument here, like you said, you will miss some subtle benefits or harms as patients shift from a score of two to zero or shift from a score of three to five, that you just won't be able to pick up in the standard or traditional dichotomous outcome. And using an ordinal analysis or what's sometimes called a shift analysis, we're attempting to capture those shifts across the entirety of the scale. Now, this sounds great, but as we said previously, it assumes a reliability to the scale that just isn't present with these kinds of functional scales, especially when you take into account the vast majority of the outcomes collected in this non-blinded trial were obtained via mail-in survey. We know that even in person, two neurologists will disagree on a score, often by one or two points. What is the reliability of a mail-in scale in patients who are aware of whether or not they received the treatment and had to accept that it was their promising intervention? How on earth can we apply a shift analysis to something like that? But, you know, it gets even worse. The shift analysis was also negative. But, but wait, then... Why did they say it was positive then? I still don't get it. Well, so the authors went on to actually perform a secondary adjustment, which I can only describe as statistical sleight of hand, in which they magically revealed a statistically significant improvement in TPA. And, you know, what they did is they attempted to, to control for some underlying inequalities in the patients that were randomized to either group. But I got to say, if you randomize 3,000 patients, randomization itself should do that job. And there's a, another point that we should bring up about this ordinal analysis. It's a secondary outcome, but it wasn't even a secondary outcome in the original trial design. So once all the data was collected, they realized they couldn't get to the 6,000 patients they wanted. They had to stop at 3,000. So they brought in a statistician who they say persuaded them to add this ordinal analysis on later. But again, it was added after 
the data was collected. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, if you actually go back and read their statistical analysis plan before they started enrolling patients, they actually talk about this ordinal analysis and decide not to use it because of all the reasons we've talked about beforehand. And then the other thing we should probably talk about in this trial, just because I think a lot of people will have heard about it, are the subgroups. And people like to pick out individual little subgroups. And so in this trial, people will look at the patients over the age of 80 and say, hey, patients over the age of 80 did better in this trial. But seeing as we know the overall trial was negative, what that means is if you were under the age of 80, you actually did worse. So we're trying to use the trial to say that we should expand TPA use to more people. But if you want to make that kind of a claim, you actually probably should stop using this drug in anybody under the age of the 80 based on these results. The other subgroup people love to pick out of this is just the zero to three hour subgroup, which makes sense. We've been talking about it all along. So we want to talk about the time here. And it's true based on their numbers, although not statistically significant, the zero to three hour subgroup looks better. But then it gets funky after that because the three to four and a half hour group actually did much worse But over four and a half hours, you did a lot better again. So this does not fit well with the time is brain hypothesis. This just looks a lot more like that random drunken walk of random data. But if you really believe those subgroups, if you see a patient at four hours, you should probably wait an hour and then give TPA. (laughs) So, so this is obviously the, the dangers of doing these subgroup analysis and all the, the statistical chance that you'll find. Um, I think the interesting part here is, yes, that when people who want to promote TPA will try to prove a certain point and try to expand the window to a certain group of patients, they'll look at one subgroup and tell you all the data about why it sounds good and just kind of hide the rest of the data. So like Justin said, we have to look at it in totality and, and trying to perform these subgroup analysis becomes very dangerous. So that's probably more than enough time on IST3. It is the largest stroke trial by far, but it also has the worst methods. And despite a bunch of shenanigans, it was definitively negative. We're on to our very last IV systemic lysis trial in stroke, and that is the Enchanted trial. So yeah, this this last RCT is a little bit different from the others. Uh, based on some registry uh, data, especially coming out of Asia, there was a question about potential increased harm at that usual dose of TPA, the 0.9 milligrams per kilogram, when you were comparing it to a lower dose of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. And actually, in Japan, TPA was licensed at 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. So this is a multicenter randomized open-label non-inferiority trial, and they compared 0.9 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of TPA uh, in patients who met the local eligibility uh, up to 4.5 hours hours after symptom onset. So the trial enrolled a total of 3,310 patients, and the primary outcome was looking at that death or disability, so they were looking at the high end of the modified Rankin scale between 2 and 6. So the results here are a little bit tricky to understand because you need to understand how non-inferiority trials work. But let's just run through the numbers first. So the primary outcome, death or disability, occurred in 51% of the standard dose group and 53% of the lower dose group. These numbers were not statistically, nor are they really clinically significantly different. And if you look at the other cutoff we use on the modified Rankin score, alive and independent, so the people with a score of 0 to 2, they were identical, 63% in both groups. And the higher dose had more bleeding. 
Using the NINS definition, it was 8% with the normal dose and 6% with the lower dose with a p-value of 0.02. And in terms of mortality, the lower dose had less mortality at seven days. So it was 3.6 versus 5.3%. And that was statistically significant. Now, by 90 days, the absolute difference in mortality was essentially the same. So it's 10.7 versus 8.5%, about a 2% increase in mortality if you use the normal dose, but it was no longer statistically significant with a p-value of 0.07. So by those raw numbers, the higher dose fairly clearly causes harm, but no extra benefit. But the conclusions are that they failed to show that the lower dose was non-inferior. And what that means is that they set a cutoff of a relative risk value of 1.12 as the boundary that they would count as non-inferior, and the 95% confidence intervals crossed this boundary. So the study was negative. Now, the problem with non-inferiority trials is that they're highly dependent on your assumptions at the outset. So here, they focused on a modified Rankin scale and took the 0.9 milligram per kilogram dose as the baseline. However, you know what? If I was running this trial, I might have done it differently. I probably would want to prove one of two things, either that the higher dose was superior to the lower dose, which it wasn't here, or that the higher dose was non-inferior from a mortality standpoint, because if it wasn't superior, it better not be hurting anybody. And although the math isn't there, I think it's fairly clear that this trial would not have been able to show that the higher dose was non-inferior to the lower dose. So in this case, I, I personally pay a lot less attention to the non-inferiority analysis and just look at the numbers. And by the numbers, they paint a pretty clear picture of no real difference, but possible harm with the higher dose. Yeah, this is such a shame. And this is always happens when people do non-inferiority trials. They just power it completely wrong. And the whole point is that your confidence intervals have to stay outside this kind of pre-specified um, threshold. And so often, you know, I mean, you look at these numbers, they're almost identical as far as efficacy. Um, and yet somehow the low dose gets marked as non-inferior. And it's clearly, when you just look at the data, um, just glance at it, you can see that the low dose group did so much better, same functional outcomes, much less bleeding. And, and maybe we should try to... Um explain that a little bit better because we, we all spend a little bit too much time with these statistics. It's, it's a little bit easier if you can uh, picture it, if we can draw this out. But with a 95% confidence interval, the fewer people there are in a trial, the wider the bars that you're going to see in a 95% confidence interval. So you're going to see those bars getting further and further apart. And the whole idea with a non-inferiority trial is that we don't want those bars to go over a certain threshold, whether it's 10% worse or 15% worse than what we're already using. But you can imagine what that means is if you make a non-inferiority trial too small, those bars get bigger and bigger. So if you want a non-inferiority trial to fail, all you have to do is make the sample size too small and those bars will always be too big. Right, and in some cases you can have the exact same point value of the two groups in the non-inferiority trial and it could still fail because those confidence bars are too large, which is essentially what happened in this case. All right, so we've talked about all the systemic lysis trials and stroke. Let's discuss a little bit about the RCTs in general. I want to talk a little bit about blinding, about conflict of interest, about stopping negative trials early, about p-values, and about fragility index. So let's start with, with blinding. 
Justin, you had raised some concerns about blinding in a few of these trials. Could you just kind of review that for us? Yeah, so as we went through, aside from IST3, which we can put aside for the moment, we said all of these trials were blinded. But I do have some questions, but were they really? TPA, if you've ever used it, actually looks a little bit different from placebo when you're putting it in that syringe. It has a phony appearance. So you could become unblinded right there. But if you've ever looked after a patient who had been given TPA, you know that there's differences. These patients bleed. The nurse putting in the IV might be able to tell what drug they got. If you look at any lab values, their INR, their clot coagulation numbers might change. So in these trials, there's a lot of opportunities for the patients to become unblinded. And it is possible to test for that, but none of these trials did. And why would that matter? Because as we mentioned at the outset, the modified Rankin scale is subjective, and it was often done over the phone or by mail. And when you're looking at your relative, your opinion of how functional they are could be significantly influenced if you know whether they did or did not receive this miracle clot-busting drug. All right, so that's blinding. The, the next thing I wanted to discuss a little bit was conflict of interest. And this is something that I've been a lot more interested in when it comes to education. EM Cases has a fairly new conflict of interest policy now. Rory, you've mentioned pharmaceutical companies a few times in our discussion so far. How can you sum up the conflict of interest with these trials and stroke in general? Yeah, you know, I mean, this kind of conflict is not unique to this body of literature, and it doesn't necessarily make the research incorrect. But I think it's really important when discussing this literature because not only did these pharmaceutical companies have access to the data and have an ability to influence it, they also had a huge influence on how these studies were crafted. They stopped their trials early. They stopped testing certain subgroups. Um, they ex and only analyzed other subgroups. So really, the picture that's being painted of this literature and what is being claimed as the underlying truth is highly affected by the influences of the drug companies that are making these trials. So that's conflict of interest. You had mentioned stopping negative trials early. I can understand why some trials are stopped early because they can tell it's quite obvious that patients are being harmed. In the context of lysis for stroke, how should stopping negative trials early color our, our interpretation of this literature? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting question when we try to summarize this data. Clearly, we don't want to continue running any trials that are hurting people. But when you're trying to summarize the stroke literature, if you do a meta-analysis, you have to realize that there is a bunch of missing data here. Five trials were stopped early because of harm. There should have been almost 2,000 more patients in those trials. That's more people than there are in NINs and ECAS-3 combined. And the problem is that smaller trials have less influence when you group them all together. So there's a systemic bias or imbalance in the literature. A meta-analysis would look really different if you included 2,000 extra patients in studies demonstrating harm. So considering that we have issues with blinding, we have conflicts of interest, we have a lot of negative trials that stopped early, how can we kind of interpret this data as a whole? 
Yeah, I think the most important take-home message here is how we interpret this literature. Let's let's just imagine for a second that the reality was that TPA was mostly unhelpful, that it didn't really affect functional outcomes at three months, and it actually caused a few patients harmed with higher rates of ICH. And now what would happen if you conducted 12 small trials that other than their sample size were actually methodologically perfect or free of bias without pharmaceutical interest and so forth? What would these trials show? So essentially what this means is, what would these trials show if the only source of bias was just random chance? And what would happen is the bulk of these trials would show no benefit, the underlying reality. But by random chance, some of these trials would demonstrate harm, and a smaller few would actually demonstrate benefit. Now, if you only look at the positive trials and ignore all the negative trials because you don't like them, the results look great. And and this is what essentially happened with TPA and stroke. Mass dye was negative, but let's ignore it because it was the wrong agent. ECAS1 was negative, but let's ignore it because we enrolled the patients in the wrong time period and gave a slightly higher dose of TPA. NINS1 was negative, but let's ignore it because we're looking at the wrong outcome. Now, NINS2 was positive. Look at this trial because it was the right patients, the right agent, and the right time period. And then came MAST-E, which was negative. But again, let's ignore it because it was the wrong agent over the wrong time period. ECAS-2, negative, wrong time period. AS, negative, wrong agent. Atlantis A and B, wrong time period, and just a complete mess. And, and then you have ECAS-3, and it was positive again. And so let's just start looking at this trial. Well, wait a minute, if we look at this trial, shouldn't we look at Atlantis A and B or ECAS-1 and 2? No, no, only look at NINS1 and ECAS3. And so you see here, when you play that kind of game of statistical chance, things can be problematic and you can lead you to a lot of misinterpretation. Yeah, so when it comes to statistics, there's a couple concepts that I think we really need to go back to really to understand this better. One is p-values and the other one is fragility index. And we've talked about p-values a whole bunch of times so far in this. Justin, could you just go through for us your understanding of p-values in the context of all this data that we've been trudging through. Yeah, so it might surprise some uh, listeners, but p-values get some people incredibly excited. Like there are are major debates over what a p-value means. I always go back to the definition of p-values used by the guy who invented them, Ronald Fisher. He said that p-values identified data worth a second look. A p-value doesn't define truth, it tells us which studies should be replicated. Another way to look at the p-value is to consider its Bayesian impact on a pre-study probability that the intervention would work. So let's run through that. Let's consider NINs. There were four primary outcomes, so not just one p-value, but they all hovered around a p-value of 0.02. So to know how likely a study represents reality after it's done, we need to have some kind of pre-test probability. And Admittedly, this is the tough part, but of all drugs that we try in phase three trials, very few work. So for any drug that we're testing for a first time, our pretest probability should probably be something maybe around 5%. Now with thrombolytics, we'd already proved that they worked in MI. So maybe we should estimate their chance of working in stroke, a related condition, a little bit higher. However, we'd already had two negative stroke trials before NINs, so maybe we got to bring that pretest probability back down a little bit. Now, I probably would have estimated it at less than 5%, but let's give it 10% to be generous. So if you apply the NINs p-value to a pretest probability of 10%, 
you find that that results in a 77% chance of it being real. Now, that's just mathematically speaking. It doesn't account for imbalance. It doesn't account for bias. It's just the pure p-value. 77%. That's pretty good. Maybe it's good enough for us to start using the drug. But it leaves us with a 23% chance that NINS is wrong purely statistically. And I think this fairly clearly explains why you need to replicate studies. And say you didn't like my 10% pretest estimate. Say you were really generous and you thought there was a 25% chance that TPA would work before NINS. Your post-test probability is still only 91%. So there's a 1 in 10 chance that it doesn't work despite a positive trial. You need replication. That's what the p-value tells us. That's how to interpret the p-value and the importance of needing to replicate studies. What about the fragility index? How does the fragility index help us in, interpret all the stroke data? So the fragility index essentially kind of tells us how stable a trial is. And, and what it's really looking at is how many patients would you have to shift from a good outcome to a bad outcome in the intervention group versus the placebo group to change the p-value from statistically significant to non-statistically significant. So, for example, if you have a fragility index of five, five patients would have to go from having a MRS score of zero or one in NINs to having an MRS score of two to six, and the p-value would no longer be statistically significant. Here comes the EBM bomb. Hi. It's Anton Nicolene again with another EBM bomb. Today, we're going to be covering the fragility index. The fragility index is a measure of the robustness or lack thereof of a study's results. It essentially asks how many outcomes need to be changed to make a study not statistically significant. This is really only calculated when we have two dichotomous endpoints, you know, good or bad outcomes. The calculation uses the Fisher exact test and values from one experimental group and one control group. The test, of course, has its limitations, the greatest being its lack of applicability to a scale such as the Rankin. But it does become helpful when studies start choosing a good outcome like 0 to 3 on the scale, as we've seen with these lysis trials. After the calculation, the fragility index is represented by a whole number. This indicates the number of control patients needed to be converted from a negative outcome to a positive one for the p-value to go above 0.05. But what does this all mean? Well, a fragility index of 100, that means 99 patients could have had a different outcome and the results would still hold. Fragility index of 1, well, that study is holding on to statistical significance based on one outcome. and likely wouldn't have the same results if the study was replicated. The fragility index really gives us an indication of how easily random chance can change the results of a trial. Funny thing is, the index for the ECAS-3 study supporting TPA? Well, it's just one. And that's been your one-minute EBM bomb. Now, these analyses have actually been done for both NINS and ECAS-3. A friend of the show, Josh Farkas, who, who does a great blog called PalmCrit, um, did this analysis for NINS. And what he came up with for the modified Rankin scale at three months, the fragility index was four. So not really much of a shift between patients to actually have, no longer have a statistically significant outcome. Um, and this same type of, type of analysis was done for ECAS-3. And in that case, the fragility index was only one. 
So this is so important because we remember there's a lot of random chance in trials. And just keep that in mind. If four patients had just randomly had a different outcome, NINs would have been a negative trial. If in ECAS1, one patient and the trial would have been different. It just tells you why replication is so important. Right. And I think the other thing to note here is no matter how we quantify this, p-values, Bayesian analysis or fragility index, this is all looking at ways to quantify random error. And there's another error that's rampant throughout these trials, which is non-random error and bias. And there's really no way to quantify that. And that's all these issues, blinding and conflict of interest and so forth. All right. So all these studies that we've talked about so far are RCTs, but there's also been a lot of non-RCT trials published on lysis for stroke. How can we incorporate all these non-RCT trials into how we think about lysis for stroke? So this is the data which I say help weaponize TPA. And, you know, there's hundreds of these trials and we can't really cover them all here. But I thought the goal would be to highlight a few and kind of discuss the typical methods that are used in these kind of prospective analyses and the problems that we see with them. I kind of separate them into three different arcs. And the first arc was the initial studies published post-NINs attempting to demonstrate the same safety in NINs in the community. Community. Um, and actually, a lot of those ended up showing harm. And so there was this second arc that was published shortly after that, uh, attempting to prove these initial studies wrong and demonstrate the true safety of TPA when it was administered outside the RCT. And the third arc, which is probably the most important, was these trials that are coming out that are trying to expand the TPA window or expand the number of patients that get TPA. And these are trials looking at delayed presentation, wake-up strokes, patients on anticoagulation or have elevated blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera. And all these analyses are trying to kind of show that TPA was not as dangerous as we believe and try to just expand the window so more patients can get it. And the big thing to keep in mind as we go through a couple of these papers, and the reason I tend to just ignore them as a group, is what we've said a number of times here, is that the modified Rankin scale is so subjective that if you don't have a control group and you have open label data, it's almost impossible to interpret the outcomes that that you're seeing. I think it's also important to note that the number one primary factor that determines what kind of outcomes these patients has is what kind of stroke they came in with. So without a control group to compare to, you can kind of craft your outcomes by determining which patients you select to be put into these kind of analyses. All right, why don't we jump right in? And I think the first of these papers, and still probably one of the most infamous, was the Cleveland Experience of TPA in Acute Stroke. And this was published in JAMA in 2001. And these authors examined IV TPA use in patients with acute ischemic stroke admitted to one of 29 Cleveland area hospitals over a one-year period. And the rate of intracranial hemorrhage was 22% in patients treated with TPA. And the rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage was 16%. In-hospital mortality was 16% in the patients treated with IV TPA compared to only 7% in the patients presenting within three hours after symptoms, but who were not treated with TPA. All in all, this was a pretty damning study. And so obviously this couldn't stand. And so a few years later, they published their follow-up study, which was published in Stroke in 2003, claiming marked improvement. And this study examined, and I almost don't believe my notes, 49 patients at only nine academic centers, not the original 29 hospitals. And this time, the rate of ICH was only 6.4%, but they had changed their definition of ICH to ICH with neurologic deterioration, 
which by the way, meant in this study that you had to die. <laughs> right. So <laughs> since the Cleveland papers, there have been a number of papers that have been published that report the results of stroke patients who receive TPA and are intended to demonstrate that it's safe. And there are too many to actually discuss them all, but I thought we could just go over a few of them. Uh, and the first of these is the CASES registry, which is the Canadian Alta Place for Stroke Effectiveness Registry. So this happens up where you guys live. And the authors reported on a prospective registry of 1,135 stroke patients treated with IV Alteplase in Canada. And the sites had to actually volunteer to be included in this registry during this 2.5 year period. And the rates of symptomatic ICH that were demonstrated was 4.6%. And of these patients who had ICH, 75% of them ended up dying in the hospitals. And the authors report excellent clinical outcomes in 36.8%, which they say is very similar to the TPA group in NINs. Okay, great. Well, that sounds pretty good to me. So what's the problem then? Well, there are a number of issues. The study was observational. It wasn't mandated to reporting, so you can, can imagine the potential for bias and which patients you report on and which ones you don't. But more importantly, the authors fudged their numbers. They reported a rate of excellent outcome of 36.8%, which they cite was similar to the TPA group in NINs. But what they don't report is this was what they called an adjusted modified Rankin score. And in reality, when you look at the true rate of patients with a modified Rankin score of zero to one, it was only 31.8%, which is actually fairly similar to the placebo arm in NINs. And so the next big uh, observational study we saw is the SITS most registry, published in The Lancet in 2007. And I think this one embodies a lot of the issues with these types of studies all wrapped up into one. And this was the big European registry that they had to establish uh, as part of their uh, the TPA approval in 2002. And they claim to demonstrate safety and benefit of TPA when using it outside of an RCT setting. They looked at the adult patients between 18 and 80 years of age who were presenting within three hours of symptom onset. Now, they excluded patients with severe stroke as indicated by baseline CT or by a baseline NIH stroke scale greater than 25 and patients who had previous strokes with residual functional deficits. And they also excluded all patients who were protocol violators. Now, when taken on face value, these exclusion criteria seem reasonable. But it's important to remember that there's no control group. And since the number one determinant of functional outcomes is the severity of illness at presentation, then it's really easy to craft the results that you want simply by selecting the right kind of patients to analyze. And the author's primary outcome were symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage and death within three months, but they also chose to look at three-month functional neurologic outcome, which for the most part was done using mail-in survey. And they included 6,483 patients at 285 centers in 14 European countries. The rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage by their own definition was 1.7%. Sounds pretty good. But when the NINS criteria was used, the rate was 7.3%. So this is one of the things about these trials. You have to be very careful of the definitions that they, of hemorrhage that they use. So the rate they're seeing is about what NINS was seeing. And remember, at the beginning of this registry, they eliminated all the patients with the highest risk of ICH. Now, mortality was 11%, and the rate of patients with a three-month MRS of 0, 1, or 2, as determined by male in this uh, survey, was 54.8%. 
So again, what is so important about this type of study is what you can do when you don't have the limitation of a control group to compare your outcomes to. In this case, outcomes can be directly influenced by the type of patients you select to be included in the analysis. So 54% of patients had a good outcome, but how many of those patients would have had a good outcome if they hadn't been given TPA? We just don't know. Right. And so it's really important to see how this kind of influences this kind of data. I think the final arc, which is kind of the most current direction these kind of post-RCT trials have taken, is this concept of pushing the boundaries of who is eligible for TPA. And we've all seen this, mild strokes, TAA, wake-up strokes, patients on anticoagulations, et cetera, et cetera. Again, there are so many of these articles, but let's for a moment just look at a few. Um, and I think some of the more interesting ones are on mild strokes and TIAs. And the first was published in Stroke by Romano et al., um, entitled Distinction of Short-Term Outcomes in Patients with Mild versus Rapidly Improving Strokes Not Treated by Thrombolytics. And these authors examined patients from the Get with the Guidelines Stroke Registry, which is essentially a U.S.-based stroke registry sponsored by the AHA. And the authors examined 42,394 patients who arrived in less than four and a half hours from symptom onset, not treated with thrombolytics because the stroke was mild or rapidly improving, and they essentially defined this as if on the chart, the reason for not giving TPA was a mild stroke or rapidly improving symptoms. And among these 43,000 plus patients, 29% had mild strokes, 44% had rapidly improving strokes, and 26% had both mild rapidly improving strokes. So most of these patients were in the three hour window was only about 10% in the three to four and a half hour window. And what the authors claim or what they say is a large portion of these patients had a bowed outcome because 27% were unable to ambulate independently at discharge and 27.2% could not be discharged home. Now, this is the reason the authors cite to give TPA, which is kind of crazy because if you think about it, overall, this group did exceptionally well. The mortality was minimum at 0.8%. And when viewed from an alternative perspective, 73% were discharged home and could walk independently. And by the way, being able to be discharged home is not exactly the most accurate representation of three months functional outcomes. Yeah, but it gets even better than that, Ari. Published one year earlier in JAMA Neurology by the same authors was an article entitled Outcomes in Mild Acute Ischemic Stroke Treated with Intravenous Thrombolysis, a Retrospective Analysis of the Get With a Guideline Stroke Registry. And just like their prior paper, they look at the Get With the Guidelines Registry, only this time to look at the patients with mild strokes who were treated with TPA. Death was 1.3%, so higher than those not treated with TPA. Discharge directly home was 70.6%, so again, less than what we saw in the patients who didn't get TPA in the previous paper. And their conclusion? Given the significant proportion of treated mild stroke and real-world safety and outcomes observed, our results provide reassurance about the safety of IV TPA in the patients with low NIHS scores. So, so this is just wow. crazy, right? I mean, because essentially when you take any cohort and you have the advantage of not having a control group, you can shift it and mold it in the way you want to make it look like what you want it to. Given all the issues we have with the RCTs, conflict of interest, bias, stopping negative trials early, the vagueness of the stroke scales, the heterogeneity of the trials, and also the issues with all these observational data that we just trudged through, 
what do we do with this huge body of literature on systemic lysis for stroke, given that it's now the standard of care to call a stroke within four and a half hours of onset? And this is such a difficult question to answer. I know everybody wants just a single clear answer. Stroke is a devastating condition, and all of us want to be able to do everything in our power to help our patients. But the data here just doesn't give us a clear answer. There are some hints at benefit, but those are shrouded in many methodological issues, bias, as well as some issues with funding. The summary for the ideal world is that we should admit that right now we do not know and start a repeat of NINs right away. The summary for the real world is probably that people should follow local guidelines and protocols, but discuss these issues with their patients as part of shared decision making. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, on the one hand, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble by going against your local guidelines and, and protocols. You know, if uh, you take what we've said on this podcast as there is no good evidence for lysis and stroke, so I'm not going to call a code stroke, you know, that's that can uh, really get you into a lot of trouble. However, we owe it to a, our patients, I think, to at least discuss, in our professional opinion, what we think the possible advantages and disadvantages of calling a code stroke are. Um, now, we haven't gotten onto endovascular therapies yet, uh, which we will in the next podcast, but based on what we've said so far, um, again, I think it's important to at least discuss this with your patient. Yeah, I think it's so important. So you cannot get yourself fired over this decision. You can't get yourself sued about this decision but you have to do the right thing for your patients. You can't feel like you're forced into a decision. You can't become cynical about your job just because of what a guideline says or because what everybody around you is saying. You have to make your own decisions, and that's the nice thing about shared decision-making. I don't think, as long as you understand this data, we all have every right in the world to talk to our patients and allow them to make their own decisions. Now, obviously, that's a little bit harder in stroke, and we should still continue to have these decisions on a high level, talk to our neurologists, talk to the people who write the guidelines. But at the baseline, this is a decision between you and your patient on the day. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree, but I, I think it, it's somewhat a little more difficult, and this battle is already won. I mean, thrombolytics are out of the bag. The the far, big pharmaceutical companies have won it, and they didn't win it on the individual patient to patient battles, right? They won the big picture of this. Um, you know, they first came out with these big randomized trials and just ignored all the bad ones and just looked at the good ones. But even that kind of frequentistic games became too costly and unpredictable. So they just moved on to just publishing these registry-based protocols where they just look at a specific portion of stroke patients and ask the questions that they want the answers to. But even that wasn't effective enough. The way Big Pharma really won this war was by getting the AHA to give them a level 1A recommendation to give TPA in the th the three to the zero to three hour window. Um, and even more importantly, the way they won this war was making giving TPA in the interest of the hospital's bottom line with the creation of stroke centers. So I think we have to accept the unfortunate truth when it comes to our climate that thrombolytic therapy for acute ischemic stroke is here to stay. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with you, Rory. There's a bigger issue, not just in uh, thrombolytics. The the amount of money that shapes our current healthcare system is a big issue that I'd love to see changed in my in my career. 
but I try to keep myself from becoming too cynical right now. And I think the whole value of going through all of this, these papers is that so that people have heard them and it becomes really obvious that no matter how much we rehash this data, there isn't one definitive answer. It becomes really obvious to me from a purely scientific standpoint, but also just from a common sense standpoint, there is no way that you can give this a level 1A recommendation based on the data that's that's there. And I think that's one of the real values of talking about this data now. Again, we don't want to get ourselves in trouble at work tomorrow but we can't let medicine get away get away with us. That's why we're here. That's why we do the Journal Jam podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious. Anyone with, with any kind of critical eye will see that none of this data is about discovering the true benefits of thrombolytics. This is about money. Um, and the way it's crafted and the way it's built is to give thrombolytics to the most amount of patients that you can. Um, and like you said, I think the importance of this podcast is not only to go through this data and kind of take a critical eye and look at it, but also just to have a repository so this data doesn't get lost because we're we're seeing over time, it's just getting forgotten about. Um, we're losing references and, you know, even the package insert of TPA no longer has all the contraindications it once had. And I can't really figure out a trial that has proved that we should have taken those contraindications away. So maybe a, a good way to, to wrap all this up, because again, we still have to go to work tomorrow and we still have to be able to talk to our patients. And I understand most of the time this decision is out of our hands. You activate code stroke and it's the neurologist doing the conversation. But why don't we just wrap up by just saying how we actually talk to our patients. And, and I'll admit, I don't work at a stroke center right now, so I, I'm not that practiced in this conversation. But I can imagine myself talking to my patient and saying something along the lines of, you know, there's a treatment that we sometimes use for stroke that's supposed to break down the clot causing the strokes. The treatment is controversial and you're probably going to hear different things from different doctors. The issue is that out of 13 major trials, only two have shown benefit and both of those trials have some problems and they were paid for by the people who made the drug. And there were some risks that we're certain about. We know that about one in 12 patients will have severe bleeding that causes worse neurologic outcomes. But despite that risk, in the best case scenario, about one in 10 patients given this drug early will have a noticeable improvement in their function at three months. Unfortunately, it's just not clear how reliable the science has been, and we don't know which patients have the greatest chance of benefit and the greatest chance of harm. So for now, the choice to receive this medication remains up to you as the individual patient. Yeah, I, that was actually perfect. I'm actually going to record that and play it back to my patients from now on because I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Great. We should make a pocket card for that one. <clears throat> All right. So I guess the big question now, before we go into the part two of this podcast on endovascular therapy is, does the history of how the systemic lytic literature evolved foreshadow how the endovascular literature will evolve and is the endovascular literature convincing enough that we should be convinced that calling a code stroke is the right thing to do for most of our patients? Mm -hmm. 